Has the United States done enough to minimize the risk of election subversion in 2024? How might problems in Congress affect a fair tallying of electoral college votes on January 6, 2025? How much danger of authoritarian rule does the United States face going forward? On Season 5, Episode 4 of the ELB Podcast, we speak with Ian Basson and Jess Martson of Protect Democracy. Welcome to the ELB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UCLA School of Law and the Election Law Blog. I recently had occasion to sit down with Ian Basson and Jess Martson of Protect Democracy, a group that is dedicated to assuring that the United States has continued free and fair elections. Jess and Ian, welcome to the ELB podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I thought that this seemed like a really good time for a discussion about threats to democracy. All of a sudden, this is something that uh, the three of us spend most of our waking hours thinking about, but all of a sudden now... It's become issues in the popular press. There was the whole question about whether Trump is going to be a dictator. Only on day one, we're told, so we can rest easy. There have been prosecutions and agreements related to fake electors. Everything seems to be coming to a head. Of course, we've got the, the Trump trial that, as we're recording, might be delayed because of an immunity claim. And so I thought this discussion would be a useful exercise to take stock of where American democracy is now and what the threats are. And I was hoping we could divide this discussion into threats to the election, the election process itself. That's the topic that I've focused most upon. And then threats to democracy more generally, if there is a second Trump presidential term. And that's the topic du jour ever since the Robert Kagan article appeared Uh, recently in the Washington Post. So let's start with the election. And let me ask you both a a question that I get asked all the time. How worried are you about whether we can have a free and fair election in 2024? Have we done enough through legislation, through litigation to make things better? Ian, maybe we'll start with you. Well, I think stepping back to the very sort of like highest levels, I think there is appropriately a good amount of alarm about the precarious nature of our democracy at the moment and probably not enough of appreciation for the fact that we've actually done pretty well up to this point, which is to say that we are living through a moment in which an autocrat, an aspiring dictator, to use the word that he used recently, um, was the president for four years um, and could be again. And typically, if you look at history and international experience, when characters like that assume the highest office in the land, they don't leave. Um, and they certainly don't leave at the end of one term, largely through the normal process. Now, obviously, there were some uh, interferences in the normal process last time. But the fact of the matter is that The United States of America had an autocrat governed for four years, voted them out, and then through after some difficult circumstances, that person left. That's remarkable. That doesn't happen typically. And so let's just take a moment to appreciate the fact that there are a lot of aspects of the U.S. system that are incredibly strong. And when people say, yeah, you know, the U.S. is not Hungary and the U.S. is not Venezuela, this is one of the pieces of evidence that they're right. Like, we were able to withstand uh, this. However, one of the models you see overseas 
is oftentimes it's not autocrat 1.0 that destroys a democracy, it's 2.0. And Hungary is the most recent example of this, where Viktor Orban was the prime minister from 1998 to 2002. He lost, he blamed his loss on fraud, and then he began assembling what he called a central political force field to allow him to return to power and then not relinquish it. And it was his second stint in power that was the downfall of Hungarian democracy. So there are some really good things we've done, uh, but we are far from out of the woods and people are right to be concerned. And I think when you talk about sort of the dangers entering 2024, I think, you know, Jess can share a little bit more about the specifics of what we need to look forward to or, or perhaps not look forward to in terms of an election in 2024. Jess, let's turn to you on this question. Sure. So um, I think if you look at the period from 2020 to today, we, we have taken some important steps to sort of further shore up our electoral system against the type of coup that we saw attempted in 2020. So the in, in Congress, the Electoral Account Reform Act was an important contribution to close off some pathways to election subversion. The Supreme Court obviously declined to, you know, full fully embrace the independent state legislature theory. And probably most importantly, in 2022, we saw voters really repudiate um, some of the candidates who were running on a platform of election denialism. Um, that said, I don't think we are out of the woods. I don't think a free and fair election is guaranteed next year. And we all need to be um, really have our guards up against against some of the risks that still remain. Let me just push back a little bit on this. One of the things that I think made our system stay together last time was that we had heroic elected and election officials in places that matter. And some of those are going to be gone. We'll still have Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, but there's no Rusty Bowers in Arizona. You know, he's going to leave. And in some places, you mentioned the you know, kind of the swing states where the election deniers didn't win office. There are some other places where they did. And, you know, of course, control of Congress could be up for grabs and control of Congress, as we'll get to in our discussion, might end up determining how the Electoral College vote gets counted. So um, how much have we done system-wide so that bad actors are not... Uh, in place, and maybe maybe the answer is that the ECRA did all that the Electoral Count Reform Act did all that could be done. I certainly don't think the Electoral Count Reform Act closed off every avenue. Um, it obviously was a critically important reform in terms of clarifying the rules around the procedures in Congress um, and and clarifying the requirements for states to certify their electoral slates. There are certainly still, I think, I, I still have you know, concerns, particularly around tactics that might delay the process of certifying the vote past uh, the ECRA's deadline for gubernatorial certification. I think for past that point, we're in a little bit of uncharted territory. But I do think there, the in particular, the sort of repudiation of the most extreme versions of the ISL theory as well as, you know, some clarification around the procedures in Congress go far towards um, shoring up the system against some kinds of attacks. That said, we all have work to do between now and 2024 to 
ensure that the folks who are in positions of authority, the positions where we had heroic figures in 2020, know that we and voters have their backs to take pro-democracy actions um, and that we are have strategies in place to respond to efforts to uh, delay or interfere with the, with the election process. Let me ask about one specific scenario that's concerned me. Uh, let's imagine the election is close again. It's Trump versus Biden again. It comes down to a couple of states again, you know, just like we saw last time. And Republicans control the U.S. House of Representatives, and Mike Johnson is the Speaker of the House. If he does not want to follow the results as all reasonable observers show them to be, let's say a second Biden victory, how much power would he have to mess things up, for example, force a contingent election? Are we in a position where the ECRA stopped a lot of state-level subversion paths, but but not in Congress? So first, you know, I, I think you're right to be concerned um, about what a Speaker Johnson might do to facilitate election subversion if he's in that office uh, on January 6, 2025. I think his actions in 2020 and early 2021 certainly demonstrate you know, a willingness to do things that undermine the outcome of an election, even after the results have been conclusively confirmed. So he was an important leader, um, as I know you know, on the amicus brief um, that House Republicans submitted in support of the Texas lawsuit seeking to validate the election results in swing states. He was a leader in the in the plan to object to the Electoral College votes in the joint session. Um, that said, we think his biggest power as as speaker, as party leader, um, would just be being in a position to whip votes in support of objections to the Electoral College. Um, and then in a scenario where, where we did reach a contingent election, the House would obviously have a decisive role. And as speaker, he might shape the rules for that, that process. But we think there are meaningful constraints on him as speaker. The Electoral Account Reform Act obviously heightened the standard for objections in the joint session. Um, and the fact that Vice President Harris would be presiding in the Senate is another important check on, on what he could do in the role of speaker. We think a more likely risk is actually um, that there won't be a speaker on January 6, 2025. This year, for instance, there, there was no speaker picked on January 6, 2023, and that would be a way to delay the process and potentially precipitate a constitutional crisis if Congress isn't actually able to take that final step of certifying the Electoral College results. One other thing worth stating here, Rick, I think underlying your concerns is is a very uncomfortable reality that the three of us are all deeply uncomfortable with, which is that at the end of the day, no matter what rules or systems or procedures you have in place, if enough people in a democratic system want to achieve a certain result, they're going to achieve it, right? You cannot build a system that is entirely, you know, sort of foolproof against a big enough political force. And what I think we're all engaged in here is trying to put in place, and this is what our founders were engaged in, the strongest possible set of systems to make it hard for people to undermine the rule of law, undermine the majority will of people, et cetera. But a strong enough political force like a gushing stream of water will find an outlet. Let me ask you, uh, because you've 
uh, at Protect Democracy gotten into questions of no labels and other third parties, and you've advocated for certain kinds of reforms that might allow for the incorporation of third parties through through fusion or ranked choice voting. Do you think that uh, a contingent election is more likely because of these outside third parties and independent candidates compared to what we've seen, say, in 2016 and 2020? It, it's certainly more likely than if you didn't have um, third party and independent candidates, right? Because if you have essentially two candidates, there is the possibility, how, though very, very unlikely, that they could tie in the Electoral College at 269 and nobody could get 270. Um, but the breakdown of how the country vote, how the, how the vote would have to be distributed would make that a highly unlikely, though not impossible scenario. But once you introduce a third party candidate or an independent candidate, all of a sudden the permutations of the electoral college vote map that could produce a situation in which nobody gets 270, thereby under the 12th Amendment throwing the election to the House of Representatives in a contingent election, there are just more possibilities for doing that. And in fact, we put out a report a couple months back showing a number of ways in which if a third-party candidate could capture, for example, Utah and Alaska or New Hampshire, these are not, you know, it, it's highly, it is almost impossible in, if you look at any electoral math for a third-party candidate to win the election, right? This is, let's just state that clearly. Um, Ross Perot did about as well as any third-party candidate could do. Teddy Roosevelt did about as well as any third-party candidate could do. Teddy Roosevelt was about as popular a third-party candidate as you could get, and they didn't come close to winning. Ross Perot didn't even win an electoral college vote, right? So the notion that a third-party can win is complete fantasy. But the possibility of a third party could, if they concentrated their resources, um, pick off a state like a New Hampshire or a Utah or an Alaska, that is still unlikely, but not as unlikely. And if it were actually the third party candidate strategy to do that in order to deprive either candidate of reaching the magic number of 270 and then assume that they would be somehow a power broker, a kingmaker, that's not a completely implausible scenario. And uh, that raises the possibility that any one of these sort of third party, no labels, RFK type candidates could create a scenario that we think would be a real crisis for the country. Because what happens if the election gets thrown to the House is introducing a whole new order of chaos to a system that is already looking particularly fragile at this moment in time. If we think it was chaos for, as Jess alluded to earlier, uh, the Republican majority to struggle to pick a speaker, imagine if they need to do that and then also establish rules for deciding who the president should be. So just to be clear, um, for our listeners who may not know, it's not just that it's thrown to the House of Representatives, it's thrown to the House of Representatives under a special rule where each state delegation gets one vote. It's not something that 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 is uh, just all 435 uh, House members voting and majority wins. Correct. But just to make it even crazier, the procedures and rules for how each state delegation would cast its vote are undetermined. So for example, should it be the rule that a state delegation casts 
its votes by majority of the representatives from that state and majority rules. So if California has 55 members of Congress and, uh, you know, 28 of them uh, vote for the Democratic candidate, then California casts its vote for the Democratic candidate. Or should it be a supermajority rule? Or should it be a unanimous rule? Um, how that gets determined, could ha- there's all sorts of opportunities for gamesmanship there. Moreover, if, for example, House delegations are divided, uh, you know, 24-24, and there's two states where the delegation is seven to six or four to four, the stakes for whether, let's take a state where they've got four Republican uh, members and four Democratic members, well, whoever controls the majority of the entire body would have an enormous incentive to try to find a reason not to seat one of the members of Congress in that delegation in order to tip the balance of that delegation and thereby tip the balance of who the president should be. Given the current lack of fidelity to norms of behavior and the anything-goes attitude that you're seeing, particularly uh, in the Republican Party right now, do we trust that there wouldn't be some gamesmanship there to try to figure out how to gain an advantage procedurally in selecting the president? I certainly wouldn't feel sanguine about that procedure playing out in a way that the country could feel good about in the House. All right. Well, you've succeeded in giving me hives about the election. Uh, Let's turn to the post-election season and imagine a second Trump administration. Uh, This is a topic, as I said, I've spent a lot less time on. I've really been focused on making sure we have a free and fair election, but it is at least a realistic possibility, if not the most likely possibility if the election were held today that you'd have a free and fair election that Trump would win. And what would that look like? And, uh, you know, the reason I reached out to you to to come on this podcast is I heard you on uh, Dahlia Lithwick's amicus podcast, and you said that if Trump is elected uh, to a second term, he'll he'll never leave office alive, right? So he'll, he will stay there uh, for the rest of his life as long as he's able to. And... I think you were the first one I heard say that. Now, now, of course, we had the Kagan article, we had other things. Uh, what is the thinking about the guardrails that would be in place to prevent something like that from happening, if that's something that Trump desired to do? Yeah, and I would note uh, no one short of the flaming liberal Liz Cheney just echoed the same concern. Um, so let's let's start with what Trump has said or suggested, because he's actually at least tried to follow through on many of the threats that seemed outlandish and that people tried to write off before. Remember, in his first campaign, he talked about banning Muslims from this country. He talked about building a wall uh, between the United States and Mexico. And when he did those things, most people wrote them off as don't don't take him seriously or literally, take him figuratively or metaphorically. There was all sorts of sort of trying to figure out how to process these things that sounded completely foreign to contemporary contemporary American politics. But he invested an enormous amount of effort in trying to do both those things and succeeded in many ways, right? I mean, ultimately, after three bites at the apple, um, he did get essentially, you know, a ban on immigration from certain Muslim uh, majority countries enacted into law and built, you know, portions of that wall uh, on the southern border. So we start with the things that he says that our political class tend to write off as outlandish or improbable. He does make an effort um, to deliver on. So what has he said about this question? 
right? What has he sort of hinted or indicated about the question of whether he would honor the American tradition, starting with George Washington, that presidents are temporary servants and then leave office? Well, um, in 2018, in a discussion with donors, talking about uh, the premier of China, Xi Jinping, said, she is president for life. That sounds pretty great. Maybe we'll have to give that a shot someday, is what Trump said. Um, in 2019, Trump reposted a video showing himself being the candidate and the winner of elections in 2028, 2032, 2036, and all the way through 2060. In August of 2020, at a rally, Trump said, we are going to win four more years, and then after that, we'll go for another four years, because they spied on my campaign. We should get a redo of four years. And then again, in September of 2020, in Nevada, he said, and after that, we'll negotiate, right? Because probably, based on the way we were treated, we're probably titled to another four years after that. So he's been pretty clear repeatedly over the course of multiple years uh, that he is entertaining the idea of serving beyond an additional four years should he get those. People have generally shrugged that off as not serious and that we shouldn't take it seriously. Well, I think we should, because what do we know about Trump and others like him? Trump's modeled himself pretty openly on leaders like Viktor Orban, who's now serving his fifth term. He's openly admired Putin and Xi, as we referenced, and Recep Erdogan as models. All of them either changed their systems or blew through the limits to serve for more than two terms. Trump knows that when he's not in power, he's more vulnerable to consequences than when he's in power. So, for example, if he were to get back into power, he would likely be able to kill all of the federal prosecutions that are currently pending against him, but he wouldn't be able to entirely kill a prosecution in Georgia, for example. He might be able to delay it until he's out of office, but the minute he returns to being a private citizen, that Georgia prosecution would likely spin up again. So the incentive for him not to leave office would be quite high. Let's look at what he did the last time he was supposed to leave office. He was supposed to leave office voluntarily in 2020. Did he leave office voluntarily or did he use every means at his disposal to stay? So I think we have to take very seriously his prior statements and all of this other you know, indicia that he would try to stay past a second term, which brings us to the next question, which is, well, could he? And here, most people cite the 22nd Amendment, which, at least on paper, limits presidents to two terms. But the Constitution on paper says a lot of things that require institutions that are all rooted in different ways in current politics to enforce them. So, for example, I think it's fair to assume that the structure of the Constitution assumes that if someone tries to block a peaceful transfer of power, they'd be impeached and convicted. But the institutions didn't implement that part of the Constitution fully. The Constitution also says that people who engage in insurrection after taking an oath are disqualified from future service, and there's a number of courts right now who are weighing the question of whether Trump is disqualified to even you know, be uh, in office again based on his involvement in January 6th and the events leading to and following it. I don't expect that those courts are ultimately going to strike him from the ballot or ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court is. And if the U.S. Supreme Court won't do that here, then why do we assume that they would intervene in a future effort? They would need, of course, some rationale for how they would ignore the plain text of the 22nd Amendment. Uh, but Trump's team is already floating some of that rationale. They've got bonkers legal arguments about how, you know, yada, yada, whatever happened in his first term means that it wasn't a full term and he gets another one. And those seem pretty bonkers right now. But the history of our Supreme Court, in both good ways and bad, is that once bonkers legal arguments get normalized and become law all the time. If the Supreme Court doesn't want to insert itself right now 
and take a decision away from voters by implementing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, should we have high confidence that if Trump sought to run again in 2028 and had his entire party and 50% of the country behind him, that the Supreme Court would step in and say no? I don't have that level of confidence. Well, I guess I'm a little more optimistic than you on this point in particular, because I do think uh, that the courts performed quite well in 2020 when it came to fighting back against election subversion. There was also this article in the New York Times, maybe now a month ago, about how the Federalist Society lawyers are squishes and they they can't really be trusted to uh, implement his power. And that makes for a very scary Justice Department, to be sure. But it also seems to mean that if the Federalist Society is on the outs, you know, like, welcome to the resistance, Leonard Leo. I mean, Jess, is is that, is, do, do you have faith in the judiciary? doing the right thing uh, as we move into 2024 and 2025? First off, I agree with you that sort of the performance of the courts in 2020 was confidence inspiring. I think in the scenario Ian's laying out um, where uh, former President Trump has had one more, one sort of his second term from 2024 to 2028, we don't know what the judiciary is going to look like at the end of that time frame. But even if you sort of trust the courts to enforce the Second Amendment and not buy whatever kooky legal arguments uh, the sort of John Eastman's of the world cook up between now and then to justify a third term. I think there's a path to staying in effective control that doesn't require you to make that kind of end run around the 22nd Amendment. So imagine a scenario where he says, look, the Constitution is a piece of paper that says I can't run again. Fine. John Jr. is my guy. He's going to run and I'm going to be in the Oval Office with him every day of his term. I think you've basically given Trump a third term in that scenario and you don't have to worry about the legal obstacles that the 22nd Amendment might pose. So I think that's what that's one sort of way that even if the courts put up all the resistance in the world, you're not necessarily going to keep him out of meaningful control. So let me turn now, finally, to the question of what do we do now? Uh, There was a very good column by Greg Sargent in the Washington Post earlier this week that said it was in response to the the Kagan, you know, dictatorship is coming, say, you know, the pushback against Trump's excesses has actually been successful and that he couldn't do nearly as much as what he wanted to do. Um, And so now's the time for action. It's not the time for panic. And so, like, if that's a kind of, like, balancing act, what are the action items that we should be thinking about between now and at least at least the, the you know, January, February of 2025? So I want, I want each of you to weigh in. Uh, let me start with you, Jess. What do you think civil society, the press, the business groups, religious groups, what should be happening right now? This is the time for all of us to be familiarizing ourselves with what the stakes are of a second Trump term and not, as Ian said earlier, not trying to brush off his more outlandish claims, but really sitting with what that would look like for each of us in our sort of positions in society and as well as those, you know, not just ourselves, but everyone. And and then trying to communicate that really clearly to voters, including voters who might be disheartened by the Biden administration or, or dissatisfied with what the political system has delivered so far. 
because I don't think we are grappling as a society with the reality of what that would look like. And that includes, you know, business leaders really thinking about what would it look like if the federal government took the DeSantis approach to Disney to anyone in the business community who spoke out against them. We actually saw former President Trump's administration do a little bit of, do some of that in the first administration, threatening media corporations um, with anti with antitrust actions. I think we should expect more of that in a second Trump term, not just aimed at the business community, but sort of up and down um, and throughout society. And, and that would be a really different world than any of us have, have ever lived in in the United States. And we should really understand that and be talking about it and shouting it from the rooftops. Ian. I agree with everything that Jess said, and I think we also can look to some of the models overseas of countries that have been either battling these modern authoritarian movements and in some cases succeeding against them, and two that immediately come to mind are Poland and the Czech Republic. Uh, And Poland recently unseated its illiberal, nationalist, authoritarian-minded law and justice party that seemed to be on a path of cementing its hold in power uh, in a way that would make it very, very difficult to dislodge in the way that Viktor Orban and the Fidesz party, their neighbors, uh, have effectively done. And many people thought that it, it would be very hard for the Polish opposition to unseat law and justice. But they did. And the lesson of how they did that is that they did the same thing that the Czechs did in blocking their uh, illiberal-minded, uh, strongman-aspiring leader, Babish, from coming to power and holding power, which is that they built coalitions across political difference. People from the left, people from the center, people from the right, people who normally disagree about any number of political or policy issues under the sun realized that in this moment of crisis, they could not afford to let those differences fracture them as the pro-democracy coalition, that they had to, in many cases, probably hold their noses and work with people that they normally viscerally disagreed with in order to form a pro-democracy coalition that maintained the foundations of democracy that made it possible to resolve their normal disagreements in peaceful ways. And I think when you look at what's happening in the United States right now, we are not in a good place on holding the pro-democracy coalition together. Uh, In some cases, because of all of these sort of third-party and independent candidates that threaten to fracture the pro-democracy coalition, uh, but also just because of more infighting within the broad pro-democracy tent than you saw in the lead-up to the 2020 election, when the pro-democracy coalition from the progressive left to the moderate left, to the pro-democracy right, was much more united in its understanding of the existential need to defeat the autocrat in office. And so I think one of the key things we've got to do is we all need to recognize that this is a moment to come together across difference. And even though we have strongly held disagreements, defending democracy has got to be the number one thing. The second thing that you saw in Poland is you saw people who were not typically involved or active in political spaces, becoming active and often in sort of very community-based ways. And so if you if you talk to the activists in Poland, what you found out was that there was somebody who was a small business owner, was concerned about the direction of the country and the threat facing, facing their democracy and the possibility of authoritarianism dominating, they were not able to unseat, who said, I'm going to start a discussion group in my neighborhood about what we can do about it. That was not something that person had ever decided to do before, but they started to do it. And what they found was that when they started 
started talking, as Jess just noted, about what a future law and justice dominated Poland would look like and the further clampdowns on freedom and liberty and democracy, people started to get active. And those stories of those people who just started those discussion groups and said, what can we do about it? They are the stories of the Polish win. And I think to Jess's point, we are going to need people in this country who don't normally think of themselves as active political players to say, I'm going to organize people in my neighborhood. We're going to start talking about the issues that Jess referenced. We're going to start having discussions about how we talk to other people who are not in this meeting. And we are going to need an outpouring of civic activism like we've never seen before if we're going to make sure that our country lives to see its 250th birthday. Well, I'm going to have to cut the discussion off right there because you ended on what I would call not the bleakest note I've heard from you. And so that's probably a good place to stop so that we can uh, be able to sleep at night, at least tonight. Jess Marston, Ian Basson, thank you for all that you're doing for democracy and thanks for coming on the podcast. Likewise. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. The ELB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UCLA School of Law, but I'm solely responsible for its content. The producer of the ELB podcast is Melody Rowell. The theme music for the ELB podcast is a composition jazz by the band BFN used under Creative Commons license. I'm Rick Hassan. Please join us again next time.